Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Kate Fulton and me, Clive Roslin. And on this episode, we are going to be discussing the somewhat delicate and controversial in some parts of the community subject of organ donation. We'll be hearing from Jess Harris, who is an organ donor campaigner and also awaiting a transplant herself. We look forward to hearing her story in just a short while. Stacey Abenston and Andrew Sherwood of the Jewish News are both going to tell us about this year's March of the Living, which took place in the past week. Plus, we'll be hearing a fascinating story from Laura Oram, who's a history teacher at a school in Windermere in the Lake District. And she's been teaching her pupils a rather interesting way of getting a grip on the scale of the Holocaust. Very, very interesting story that you do not want to miss that. Plus, we'll also be hearing from Russell Bahar, who will be telling us about the J-Trade exhibition. But before all of that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Commons debate that saw MPs from across the political spectrum line up to denounce anti-Semitism. It was unprecedented for the House of Commons, but the target of much of their anger, the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, absented himself from the chamber for a large part of the three-hour debate. The party's deputy leader, Tom Watson, pointedly moved from the front bench to sit next to Luciana Berger, whose personal harrowing story drew a standing ovation, a rarity in the Commons. The Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott has been accused of using a fake image of a bombing raid in a social media post about the Syrian airstrikes. Ms Abbott was hitting out at the government for not holding a parliamentary vote before launching airstrikes in response to the chemical weapon attack at Douma. The picture appeared to show a fictional raid by an Israeli jet bombing Tehran rather than an actual RAF raid on Syria. Ms Abbott said the criticism was pathetic. The London Mayor Sadiq Khan has said he'll carry on lobbying the government to fully ban the terror group Hezbollah. He'd previously written to the Home Secretary Amber Rudd. His pledge came as concerns were raised that the group's flags could once again fly on the streets of London in two months' time at a march in June. Such flags, featuring a gun, flew and were worn on clothing at the annual Al Houts Day parade in July 2017. Many public figures in Germany, including the head of the Jewish community in Bavaria, have condemned the awarding of a music prize to Kollega and Bang, two popular rappers in the country. Their winning album boasts lyrics calling for another Holocaust. At the presentation last week, though, another German pop star, Campino, received a standing ovation from the audience after he said right-wing extremist and anti-Semitic insults crossed the line of respectability. Jewish care staff have paid tribute to Millie Finger, who's died at the age of 101. Millie introduced Channel 4 television shows earlier this year, which marked 100 years of women getting the right to vote. She was born Millie Volvish in March 1917 and attended Jewish Care Centre in Stepney, where she socialised with her childhood friend, Beattie Orwell, who is 100 years old. Vivian, thank you very much indeed. Well, let us begin this episode of The Jewish Views like we normally do with a glance over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining us in the studio to go through it 
is editor Richard Ferrer. Richard, what have we got on the front page? Scenes from the Houses of Parliament, methinks. Yeah, um, our headline this week is House of Tears. And for, I think, the best part of three years, we've been talking about the Labour anti-Semitism crisis and its political cost. Well, this week we saw its personal cost. There was a three-hour debate in the House, in the chamber, and I've never seen scenes as raw and as emotional. This is obviously a very staid and serious and sombre chamber of democracy. There were people in tears listening to the likes of Ruth Smith and John Mann and Luciana Berger talking about how anti-Semitism has affected them, torn them from their party. Dame Margaret Hodge actually said she feels like an outsider in a party she has been a member of for 50 years. Wes Streeting had to put his arm around Ruth Smith. This is in the House of Commons. So, and and you know the most interesting thing of all? uh, Two things, really, in terms of how the Labour Party treat this. On the one hand, you had Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, and he got up from his seat on the front bench and walked to the back benches and sat amongst those MPs. Actually felt like he was one of them, like he empathised, he supported, he was physically there amongst them. And you had his leader, the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, sat there for half an hour, disappeared, rolled back in towards the end, didn't look particularly engaged, uh, emotionally disinterested, very similar to the interview we had with him a couple of weeks ago, just didn't engage, wasn't even in the room. Uh, And this is really raw emotional stuff. What I found most moving was at the end of the debate, the way... MPs stood up and applauded and cheered. Well, it's it's not the thing to do, is it? I remember the SNP a couple of years ago after the last election, or was it the one before last, there was this huge influx of new MPs or Scottish National Party MPs and they all started to very loudly applaud and the Speaker told them to be quiet because it was against, against House rules. Well, that all went out the window because yeah. it was pure human emotion. It was wrought human emotion from start to finish. And and as I said, it, there's, there's one thing actually dealing with the political cold light of day stuff. But when you're actually seeing how it affects people uh, as people, then really, if, if Labour Party can't get a handle on this, they really do have a problem. I found it extraordinary, Richard, that they... Well, I mean, you heard Luciana Berger read out some of the things that the trolls had said. And then the camera went to to Jeremy Corbyn and he just looked like he looked blank. And I found it just extraordinary that in the whole time, maybe he had to get up. Who knows what goes on the machinations of Parliament? Maybe he had to leave and his allotted 45 minutes to be in the House at that time was up. Who knows? He could have found two minutes to get on his feet. Where was he? I'm just completely gobsmacked, particularly because there was such foul trolling trolling that had been going on. Do you think this will highlight now exactly what the Jewish community have been saying for the past however many years we've been saying it? Or do you think that this is just going to be a flash in the pan and then off it goes back to the way it was? I think, unfortunately, the latter, but it definitely highlights the man's inability to understand what's under his nose, the actual problem. And it's a long-term issue, and it's not going to go away because anti-Semitism isn't going to bring Labour down and uh, the Jeremy Corbyn project down and momentum down. It's far too ingrained now. And unfortunately, the Jewish community is going to continue to suffer until that changes. Though I do think it is important to stress in Jeremy Corbyn's absence from this programme, because, I mean, you know, we waited three years for him to appear on it once. We We certainly can't expect him back again three weeks later. Well, we did give him an interview a couple of weeks ago (laughs) on this programme. He had had plenty of opportunity to talk then. He did, but in all fairness, what he did say is that he doesn't stand racism of any form, whether it be anti-Semitism, anti-whatever religion. He would also say that the Labour Party is not a racist party. And he did come up with all of the, the lines to try and reassure us. It is unfortunate, though, that the community 
seems far from reassured at the moment. Traditionally, the Labour Party has been the home of Jewish voters up until Blair and Brown. I think Ed Miliband, it started to peter out. And at the last election, only 4% of the Jewish community voted Labour. Absolutely extraordinary. Well, I dare say that we will see what happens with that ongoing saga as it continues to unfold in the weeks ahead. But let's try and move on to a more positive story, shall we? And I believe that, Richard, you've been going to a rather splendid concert. I had quite the most magical weekend last weekend. JNF UK hosted this historic concert in Jerusalem. It's music of the Holocaust composed in the camps, never before heard in 73 years since liberation. This remarkable composer, a guy called Francesco Latoro, an Italian, has spent 20 years finding these songs and lullabies and, and nursery rhymes and, and symphonies etched onto toilet paper and, and wooden crockery and, and coal rubbish waste paper are scattered around the world he's brought them all together and 11 of them were performed on Sunday night in Jerusalem I'm not going to go through all of them but one particularly stood out a lady called Aviva Bar On when she was a little girl in Theresienstadt the nurse gave her the, the uh, this little song that she used to sing to, to make her feel better and that her name was Elise and then Elise unfortunately got sent to the camps as so many did and she perished and now Aviva aged 85 was there on stage on Sunday singing that song and it never been written down it was only ever in her head for 85 years uh, honestly goosebumps on goosebumps I'm, I've got goosebumps thinking about it now I've got goosebumps um, hearing it yeah it's just a silly little ditty about life in Theresienstadt and just yeah it was an extra 3,000 3,000 people in the audience a lot of them Israelis you know they never shut up but you could hear a pin drop it was just beautiful so yeah JNF UK have done a wonderful thing and hopefully they'll do it again maybe even in London was this to commemorate 70 years yeah it was it, it fell between it Yom HaShoah yes, and this week's Yom Ha'atzmaut celebrations. Well, you'll come back with a very nice tan for it, so <laughs> it's obviously done something for you. <laughs> it probably won't last. Oh, I don't know. With the weather we've experienced so far this week, I think there's a very strong chance. And uh, we'll have to leave it for this week, but uh, let's hope the weather stays the same. But thank you, Richard Ferrer of the Jewish News. I don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. And now I have sitting next to me Jess Harris, organ donor campaigner. And there's a very good reason for this, isn't there, Jess? And that is because you've, you're waiting for I'm currently no. waiting for a double transplant, a kidney and a pancreas. Now, how long have you had to wait so far? Today I've been on the list seven months and one week, but I found out about a year ago I was going to go on the list and two years ago that I even had a problem with my kidneys. How long can you go on like that? If I was just waiting for a kidney, the wait could be up to four years. Because I'm waiting for the double transplant, my wait's about 12 months to 18 months. I'm probably about halfway through. Now what does this mean to you personally? It means the, the longer I've been on the list, the more nervous I'm getting. My phone went yesterday. I was on the bus with my dad and it was a number I didn't recognise. And I couldn't breathe. My heart just it just dropped. And it was... My life's kind of on hold at the moment. Well, it is because I don't know... I can't make plans far in advance. I can't go away because in case I get the call when I'm abroad, that's kind of my luck normally. I can't really work because of the side effects from doing dialysis and having no kidney function. So everything's just in limbo at the moment. So how often do you have to have dialysis? I do it every night, every morning at home. 
gosh. And you've been tirelessly, because of this, of course, you've been tirelessly campaigning to get the laws on organ donation changed. How can they be changed? I've been doing a little bit of campaigning, talking to as many people as I can. And it's more about like the opt-out vote and that everyone automatically is listed as an organ donor unless they choose to opt out of the system. Whereas at the moment, we've got the reverse where you have to sign up to opt in to be an organ donor. Uh, can you have the organ of, once you get it, an organ of anybody? Or does it has to be a female or has to be... Jewish, if that sounds, doesn't sound ridiculous. It doesn't. Actually, I asked this question this morning at clinic. I don't have to have a Jewish organ. I just have to have from a white... I think it, they do all these different antibody testing and blood group testing. It's so complicated. I don't really know the science behind it, but there's an awful lot of cross-matching that goes on between people. When you first found out about needing a transplant how did it manifest itself did you just start feeling a bit under the weather took yourself off to the doctor or was it blatantly obvious that one morning something was seriously not right no not at all i had gone to the hospital for my normal i'm type 1 diabetic i'd been at clinic for normal routine blood tests my whole family were away and my doctor that never normally calls me called me saying you need to see a kidney specialist tomorrow and that never happens on the nhs went to see the specialist and she said we'll try this medication this tablet see if we can slow down the process a couple of weeks later it was clear it wasn't nothing had changed had a kidney biopsy and they told me my kidney function was about 48 to 50 percent which people can manage you can manage on 50 percent kidney function and then somehow I managed to get salmonella and from getting so ill from the salmonella my kidneys just completely failed and they never really recovered are you able to lead a more or less normal life in the meantime? It depends on what you say by normal. I get up, the, the first thing I do in the morning and the last thing before I go to bed is dialysis. So that's not typically normal. But in between that, depending, like if I'm feeling well, luckily I'm able to go out, see friends. I've got to be careful. I get really tired and I get quite, I can get unwell very quickly. And if I get run down or overtired, it can precipitate illness. But in terms of going out, food shopping general day-to-day things I'm able to do most things how old are you 30 you're 30 and your diabetes is type 1 that means it started is there some sort of connection between diabetes and kidneys usually there is quite a big link between diabetes and kidneys so I, I got diagnosed with diabetes when I was 12 13 ever since I was diagnosed so from being a really healthy child my life has been back and forth to hospital back and out of hospital missed loads of school and there is a link between diabetes and kidney failure, but it's just getting that salmonella sort of was the kick I didn't need. Now, there is one element that we have totally not mentioned so far, and that, of course, is that when it comes to Judaism and organ donation, there is this, I suppose, dispute, for want of a better term. There is a, a very unclear path to organ donation, and the more religious in society would have us believe that it is not as black and white as saying yes you can be an organ donor or you can receive organs and no you can't now although i'm not going to pretend to understand it how do you respond when you have come up against because i know you have when you come up against those who put their religion ahead of the health ultimately and well-being of an individual such as yourself in the past i have thanked whoever it is for their opinion 
and told them or asked them and said, well, and I'm honest with them, before I was in this situation, I hadn't thought about organ donation. I mean, the, th the closest I ever got to thinking about it was when I passed my driving test and I have to tick a box to say, yeah, I'll be an organ donor. And then I kind of just kindly or politely tell them that would they be so anti it if one of their children, one of their partners, they ended up, if they were unwell, would they refuse one because it was against their religion or if it meant that they'd have a so-called normal life after? I happen to know a very old lady who wants now, a religious Jewish woman, who wants now to give her organs away when she passes. And she went, phoned up the rabbi to ask him, and he said, by all means, it's absolutely all right to give an organ or to accept an organ if you're Jewish. I think there are so many different opinions, depending on who you speak to. It's saving lives, and I think the Jewish religion always really values, and it's meant to be one of the biggest mitzvahs, like saving lives, doing Life what you can. Life is the most important yeah. thing, yes. You are absolutely right, of course. I mean, that is that is exactly it, is that the however opinions may differ when it comes to the religious aspects of it and whether or not someone is going to put their religion by saying, oh, no, everything is sacred and therefore when someone passes you mustn't alter them in any way, shape or form, therefore you can't donate organs. The truth is that above all of that is that there is, as you say, no greater mitzvah than life. So to me, it strikes me as obvious that if you're ultimately saving someone's life, surely that has got to be. I don't know if it's that straightforward. I mean, I wouldn't like to jump in with any kind of formal knowledge, but I, I'm aware that the that religious people, which sounds awful, very you're allowed to accept an organ, but not necessarily to give an organ, which... But aren't you allowed Is to give difficult? an organ? I think you're allowed in to give an organ in life. You're allowed to give an organ in life, but not necessarily if you can manage in death, without I it. I think. Yeah. I believe I think that. It has to be buried whole. That, yeah, exactly. That's exactly where one of the biggest problems lies, is because of the, the notion of one needs to be complete when buried. And I think that that's where the, the biggest issue of it lies. But in and amongst all of this, would you say that your attitude, personally, you say that you didn't really look into organ donation, but has your attitude towards organ donation changed since becoming unwell yourself? Or have you always been of the mindset that people should automatically be organ donors and opt out if they want? If I'm honest, I hadn't even really contemplated it. I mean, I don't think you really do as a young person. It's not one of the top of my list priorities thinking about, you don't really think about death. Since I've been in this situation, I've been doing my bit to try and raise awareness. I've met some amazing people through it, and I have to say I'm probably one of the luckier ones. Some of the people I've met have been amazing, but they're even more unwell than me. Currently, there are like 6,500 people waiting for some sort of transplant on the list. I think you're absolutely amazing. May I congratulate you, and I think you deal with it all very, very well, and I just hope and pray that you'll get a new organ very, very soon. Thank you very much. Just finally, if anyone out there listening does actually want sort of any either more information or maybe what they could do to help, what would you suggest that they do if, if they are listening to this and think, I'd love to know what I can do to help? What, what should they be doing? If you go to good old Google and search for NHS organ donation or if you live near a hospital, there's always transplant teams, transplant nurses that can advise you or point you in the right direction. There are also live donor schemes where people can donate to complete strangers if they feel that strongly about it and there are all these like altruistic paired because I need the pancreas as well and I can't just take a kidney I can't participate in this scheme but for instance if my mum wanted to donate to me but she wasn't a match she could donate a her kidney that would go to a complete stranger and then in return the system would work out somehow that I would end up with a kidney if that was feasible well, one way or another I think that we all wish you nothing but the best but thank you so thank much you. for speaking to us today about it on thank the Jewish you. Views.
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. I'm speaking now to Laura Oram from the Lake School in Windermere. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thank you. Uh, You've got an incredible project, which I know that our listeners want to hear all about. Tell us a little bit about the project and how it all got started. So we are collecting a huge amount of buttons. We're we're aiming to collect 1.5 million buttons, hopefully more, in a project to commemorate, really, remember the children that lost their lives during the Holocaust. The project came about last summer when we had Arek Hirsch, one of the survivors who uh, came into school to talk to our students about his experiences. And he was actually one of one of 300 children who was brought to the Lake District after the liberation of the concentration camps in 1945. 732 children were brought over in total, 300 of which came to the Lake District, and he was one of them. Anyway, so he came to talk to our students, and when our students have a talk from a survivor like that, I don't like to just send them on their way. I like to get them to sort of sit and reflect about what they've heard and and, and what it means. So I tasked them with thinking of an appropriate Holocaust Memorial. And one of our students, who is referred to in the public domain as B, came up with an interesting question, which I'd kind of thought about, but not particularly deeply until that point. She said, but Miss Arek says that six million Jews were murdered in in the Holocaust. And well, I don't know what six million is, Miss. (laughs) So... And I sort of thought, yeah, do you know what? You're right. We, we can all picture maybe 20,000 people in a football stadium or, you know, 500 people in a school assembly or whatever it might be. But but beyond that, we really have no conceptualization of of what that looks like. So that led to a conversation with, with B where we discussed sort of a way to incorporate that idea into a memorial. And she said, well, why don't we collect you know, a large number of something really small. So I said, right, okay, so what, what are you thinking then? What what do you think would be appropriate? And she said, well, there's, there's things like paper clips. And I showed her the video of a project that had been done in America with paper clips. And then she said, but paper clips are all the same, miss, and children and people are all different, <laughs> which is how we got to the idea of collecting buttons because oh, they're all individual. They're all different because every single person is an individual. But it's a very, very powerful message. Yeah, you know, I think I can't even imagine myself what six million buttons looks like. How, how many boxes are we? To, sorry, one point five million it's for the children, isn't it? You could possibly collect yes. six million. Yeah, one point five million buttons. How many boxes? How many rooms? How, and how are you going to display them? Well, I can I can safely say that I can now picture what four hundred and seventy two thousand looks like. Gosh, go on, tell us. Packaged up in the back of my classroom, and there's about maybe about a quarter as many again still waiting to be counted again in boxes at the back of my classroom. There's two or three mail bags by reception waiting for me to collect. And who's and sending them all to you? How are you getting them? They're coming from all over the world. I, I started the project by just putting a, a post on Facebook 
to explain the idea that they'd come up with and to just appeal to people, I thought, in the local community to send buttons in. I, I kind of envisaged that the project would maybe get a little bit of interest locally and that we'd be able to get a few thousand buttons and use it as a teaching tool in that it's sense. A um, what I what I didn't expect was sort of seven hundred shares on Facebook and bucket loads of buttons arriving from all over the world as a result of that post. Um, this sounds almost had, flippant, but who has to count them? Is it you? We are counting them in who, who school. is we? We me and the students, All right. <laughs> we have PSHE lessons. So sometimes there's a bit of a starter activity or if we're talking about things like discrimination, racism, all of those issues that have links to their PSHE lessons, I sometimes use sort of counting a few buttons as a starter activity to kind of focus what it means to, you know, to discriminate against different individuals. We have community counting days. We've actually got one this Saturday here at school. The last one we held, 50, 53 members of the local community, local politicians and such like turned up to lend a hand counting. And is each one they touch is representative of, of a human form. I mean, that's all. You almost yeah. sort of treat the buttons with reverence. I'm still interested, Laurie, in how you're going to actually display them. Will there be some sort of installation or something to say, and look what we have done, look what this represents? I mean, can you create a a sculpture or some sort of format? I'm thinking of when I went to see the poppies around the tower, and they were so powerful. I mean, that was, for me, one of the most most impressive pieces of of art I've ever seen. In fact, I've got a poppy at home. I found it very, very moving. I bought one. Yeah, yeah, we're, we are aiming to do something along those lines. But obviously, the difficulty at the moment is that we still have no idea what what the final volume weight, you know, all of those things of the buttons is going to be. But I am working with Trevor Avery at the Lake District Holocaust Project at, at Windsmere Library, who has got some contacts, artists and sculptors and such like. So we are going to move to approach them and see if they'd be interested in working on the project. We'd like the installation to remain here at school on the site of the Colgarth estate where the children came in 1945. We think that would be sort of a really nice way to show that we sort of still remember the history of our site, really. Now, you're talking about this today, but is it not possible to get in touch with a television programme like Blue Peter or something like that? where you could yeah. tell the story that way and you'd get yeah, many, 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 many buttons. The difficulty that I've got at the moment, although I've got some fantastic people helping me, particularly down in the southeast, organising collections at the Radlett Centre and, and the Wiener Library and various other places, essentially I'm, I'm managing this around a full-time teaching timetable. <laughs> so I've got a list of things as long as my arm and people I need to contact, but I just haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> I was going to ask, actually, how you manage this with your day-to-day job, actually, because this must be taking over your life in some weird way. Did you ever foresee it happening like this? Absolutely not, no. Like I say, I I sort of thought that perhaps the local community and the school might collect a large quantity of buttons as a a bit of a a teaching tool, but I I certainly didn't think it would take off in the way it has. The Holocaust is now not going to be part of the school curriculum anymore. How can you imagine that that it will be taught? Do you think that's a, do you think that's a bad decision, or, and is that something that you will continue to teach yourself in the schools? Oh, absolutely! I can't. You know, whatever whatever the 
government say I think it it will remain a part of the curriculum in in most schools across the country I can't I can't see a world where where teachers don't include that in their curriculum at all well it's absolutely fascinating and thank you so much indeed for speaking to us about it today you are listening to the jewish views in association with the jewish news now it's around about this time of year that the march of the living takes place it's still relatively new i suppose in terms of how long it's been going for but all the same it is well and truly an annual occurrence now and it of course occurred quite recently within the last couple of weeks and so we have our very own andrew sherwood from the jewish news of course, he is sports and community editor. But we're also joined by Stacey Abenstern, who also attended the March of the Living. The, both of you were actually on March of the Living for this year. So welcome to you both. I suppose let's start off with you, Andrew. Andrew, just explain to anyone who perhaps doesn't know what exactly March of the Living is, in case I haven't explained it properly. <laughs> well, the actual march itself takes place on the final day of the trip. And it is a trip everyone congregates at Auschwitz-Birkenau. And then they do a march, a procession from that site to the Birkenau site. So it's a one and a half kilometer procession down there but that is the actual culmination of the whole march of the living day trip i wasn't aware of it myself i just thought we'd go there we'd learn about the holocaust and the concentration camps and the death camps but i was pleasantly the wrong word but i was surprised that the the first part of it actually dealt with the history of polish jewry going back like a thousand years so the actual trip was to make us aware of the history of jews in poland and then obviously about the holocaust and how the jews suffered and have you ever been on March of the Living before? This was my first trip. And well, let's bring in Stacey in at this stage as well. And Stacey, let's find out from you, what exactly were your expectations of March of the Living? Have you ever been on March of the Living before, either yourself? So I've never actually been on March of the Living specifically. I have had a few friends who've been on it before and they've said how, what a meaningful and experience it is and how much it impacts you. But I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I've been to Poland before on a trip with a survivor and I assumed it would be quite similar to that. I was surprised as well at the amount of education there is and how how much you learn throughout the week and the mix of emotions that you feel as well. But also within the group, the, the types of discussions you have and the processing sessions you have just help to, to really come not come to terms, that's the wrong word, but try and have an understanding of what you're being educated about. And obviously it all accumulates to a march at the end, which I was also surprised at as well for, for different reasons. But it's not, I didn't really have any expectations. I just assumed we would just go around the sites and learn about the Holocaust, but it was a lot more than that. Now, Andrew, the truth of the matter is that I'm a bit ignorant when it comes to March of the Living. And although, yes, I've absolutely heard of it, I don't think I fully understand exactly what it is from start to finish. Are we saying that it is an actual organised trip to the concentration camps and the the march, as it were, is actually, as you say, is, is sort of the end result of it, that you do, as it were, march from one death camp to the other? But what happens around it? This is what I suppose well, I'm it. still I mean, not understanding. The March of the Living is an international organisation, if you like. Stacey and myself were part of the March of the Living UK delegation, which this year was the largest ever UK delegation. Correct. So there were 275 members. So we were all there. It's, it's a six-day trip. It's an educational trip, as Stacey was also alluding to. And you get to learn all about the, the history of Jews in Poland. 
we also go to various death camps, concentration camps. We have Holocaust survivors on the buses with us who go around. We hear their stories. We hear their accounts. And then we discuss what we've seen during the course of the day. We have our processing sessions so everyone can talk about their feelings, what they've seen, how they feel, how they interpret certain stuff. And it just gives you a much more comprehensive understanding of Poland back in the 1930s. And the idea is that you're actually there on Yom HaShoah, aren't you? Yom HaShoah was obviously last Thursday. The march itself was on Thursday. So we had over 12,000 people from around the world. They were there. We had the Israeli president, the Polish president. They were talking at the ceremony at the end. And to go back to the march itself, everyone kind of the wrong terminology but everyone's lined up in the Auschwitz site itself and you literally very slowly process through you start under the the infamous sign and then you do this slow march to Birkenau where the ceremony took place Stacey what would you say that you have learnt from it that you had no idea about beforehand I mean a few things in terms of education some of the things that I learnt I've taken away from and I can't stop thinking about it and it's going to take me a long time to feel like I've processed those things. One of those obviously we went to a concentration camp called Majdanek. I've never been there before. It was quite shocking to see how close the camps were to the actual towns to the point where I think there was a block of flats actually overseeing from their window they could see the concentration camps and that was the same when the Holocaust was happening. And there was a conversation that we had in our group about bystanders and the fact that when in Majdanek they decided to execute 18,000 Jewish people, the people in the flats were sitting on their roofs taking pictures. And that's one thing that I didn't know about and I hadn't really thought deeply about the, the bystander aspect of it. Aside from that as well, I found out a few days before the trip that my great-great-grandma and great-great-uncle actually were murdered in Auschwitz, and I had absolutely no idea. My opa, my granddad, told me, and my dad, I spoke to my dad, he had no idea, so none of our family knew about this. So that completely changed all the perspectives for me, and that was definitely something I wasn't anticipating when I signed up to the trip. So that that's another thing as well. When you say that it was as an educational trip, I was anticipating it would be sort of six formers and, you know, almost kids. I mean, I know lots of them sort of go, but it seems to be, obviously, Andrew you're, you, and, and Stacey, you're, you're both adults, and it seems to be that you could, you've digested in a different way processing than... than um, a teenager or six former sure i mean there was a wide a wide range of groups in terms of age there's youth there's young adults young professionals and adults itself so it ranges from the teens to the 50s 60 year olds who were there as well as i said the gb delegation so the uk delegation is divided into seven buses and those divisions are reflected in the age groups so while everyone goes around to mostly the same the same places it's it's done in a way where there's more talking for the adults for instance there's more interaction and more kind of uh, activities, if you like, for the for the for the teenagers. I do think what is amazing, just following on from Andrew's point, is the fact that it is open to all these ages, and people can come and follow their own journey and use the processing and discussions to help them through it as well. So it doesn't matter what age you are, you'll get something out of March of the Living. What did you get out of it, Andrew? 
Well, the reason I wanted to go, I wanted to go for two reasons. On a personal level, first of all, I've learned about the Holocaust since I was a six, seven-year-old at a Jewish primary school. I've read the books. I've seen the TV documentaries. I've been to other camps in Germany in the Czech Republic. But Auschwitz, you know, people were telling me, you really need to go and see this. And I wanted to go there myself just to kind of get some closure in the sense that I'd be there firsthand to experience it. I mean, you can read all about it you like, but it's only when you go to Auschwitz and you you know you go to the various blocks and you see four hundred thousand pairs of old shoes and you see like the the room full of uh, human hair, and that just you know really hits you. You know, we went to a forest where there's a series of mass graves, and one of the graves had about eight hundred bodies of babies and young children, and you know you go there and you know people you, you know you're lost for words emotions it's all over the place obviously people react differently to it and like Stacy said at the beginning I'm still processing various aspects of the trip myself we got back on Friday nearly a week on and I'm still having images stuff that I learnt but for me as well I think I got satisfaction is the wrong word but I satisfied why I wanted to go there to kind of get some kind of closure I wanted to go there I achieved what I wanted to achieve and if anything, while I was still there, I was saying to people, you know, I want to come back. I want to do stuff to help out. And so it, it was a very, very powerful trip for me. Very meaningful as well. Just finally, I want to ask both of you, Stacey, how has it changed your outlook on the Holocaust? I don't necessarily think it's changed my outlook in terms of how horrific it is and how it shouldn't have happened. However, I do think that it's helped me feel more educated on it. It's helped me understand the history even before the Holocaust in Poland. And it's helped me be able to educate others and go home and help educate others about the Holocaust and get involved with different Holocaust charities. I know I work for Maccabi GB and I'm already thinking about the events that I am in charge of and that I manage and how we can bring Holocaust education into those because it is so important. And I also think as well, one thing that I wasn't expecting from March for the Living and one thing that I do think is as awful and I will never be able to comprehend what has happened as well as that, we were able to celebrate our future. And I think that that is so important that no matter what has happened in the past, we have such a thriving Jewish community and there is so much that we can celebrate in terms of having a future and being able to educate them about the past, but celebrate and commemorate the people that perished in the Holocaust, but also to celebrate the future that we have. Finally, Andrew, how about you? How has it changed your outlook, your view, and the way that you understand the Holocaust? Well, I don't think it changed anything in terms of what I knew, what I'd known already, what I'd expected. Again, what I saw was what I expected, but it just brought it all home again, how these things can happen beforehand. You know, Polish Jews thrived, and yet it just turned into this. And it showed us as well that you look at what's happening around the world nowadays with various dictatorships, various genocides, and it's something that we shouldn't just sit back and you know stand by and just say just look at this and say that's unfortunate but not do anything about it and it's also coming home it's made me much more passionate about telling people about it and as i said doing stuff to help you know the volunteers for example survivors well it's absolutely fascinating and thank you both so much indeed for speaking to us about it today andrew sherwood sports editor for the jewish news and stacy abenston who have both taken part in this year's March of the Living. And, you know, just listening to them there, thinking that it always 
bamboozles me that however much we think we know about the Holocaust, there's always more to know about it. And I can't begin to imagine what a trip such as March of the Living would do to even begin to try. You heard it with both Stacey and Andrew. They said they couldn't really process everything they, they I'm, witnessed. I'm thinking it really should be a compulsory trip. I've, I've always said that because, I mean, I went to Auschwitz and Birkenau and I've never forgotten it. And I've always thought it should be compulsory to all school children everywhere in the world to go there and have a look. And Birkenau is the most depressing of it all. I mean, depressing in the sense that you can go and visit the gas. Yeah, I know that you're walking where people have have died. I mean, I found it very moving. I saw some footage from this year's March of the Living where they all sang Hatikva at the end, The Hope. And wow. that was very, very moving as well. And people were all standing around and singing Hatikva in Hebrew and to, looking towards the future, which is something that, that Stacey mentioned. And, and I would echo that. That's something that should be in conjunction. On the other hand, the most extraordinary thing that I found myself doing at Birkenau after having seen the gas chambers was all I can do is say Kaddish. Yes, I think they also said Kaddish. I believe they did around the... Just there, just standing all together in a big circle. 12,000 people. Feels like the buttons, I can't quite imagine it. Lots of people. Oh, the buttons was an extraordinary thing. And also, you know, as well, I I wonder whether or not any of us truly know what either 1.5 million or indeed 6 million actually does look like. And what a thought-provoking question that pupil asked Laura. What does 6 million look like? Or I don't know what 6 million or 1.5 million looks like. And actually, if you stop and think about it, do any of us know? Of course we don't. Because I don't. I I could say that if I saw 1.5 million anything laid out in front of me, I I wouldn't have an idea. But of course, when you stop and think that the maths is something along the lines of for every single Jew in this country times that by 23, every single Jew in this country, that is the scale we're talking about. It's mind-blowing. Absolutely unbelievable. Don't forget, if you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email us on studio at jewishviews.co.uk. You can go to Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. Or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or go to the website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, if you happen to be in the building or construction industry, you may want to pay close attention to our next guest, Russell Bahar, if his name sounds familiar, used to be of this parish, shall we say. However, nowadays, Russell can be found helping and organising events such as J-Trade. And Russell joins us in the studio to tell us exactly what J-Trade is. I think we need to start with that, Russell. What is J-Trade? It's a big question. J-Trade was put together just under a year ago, put together by a guy called Ari Pfefferkorn, who is in the property construction business, if you like. He is very successful over the last five, six years. And he's put together a, 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 a trade show for the Jewish community, which is, which is the, the hub of it. Now, I have to ask a very ignorant question. Why specifically is there a correlation, shall we say, between uh, construction and the Jewish community? Why, why is this for the Jewish community? 
the the background of Ari's his company Aim Building again very successful comes he's from Stanford Hill. He decided that what he wanted to do was to keep the community, if you like, afloat, to keep it connected, to keep it networking. Business nowadays, you know, the whole point is about network and the whole point is about, you know, inter interacting with other other businesses, you know, referrals and everything else. And what he wanted to do was to build this unique event one day event and it's not specifically as visitors for only the jewish community it's 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 uh, the trades the traders on the day the the exhibitors itself or the visitors obviously it don't have to be jewish to be but the, the the whole point was to keep it within the community to thrive he wants to you know make the the community one big network and, and it's, if it's if you will it's more of a showcase of what the community has in this particular industry right? yeah absolutely i mean there's going to be anyone from you know plumbers to iron construction companies, to property developers, lawyers, surveyors, solicitors. We've got great speakers. We've got some fantastic sponsors. But with this particular event, how is it going to work as such? What is someone like me who is interested in going to it going to experience? Do I have to have, as it were, some sort of business uh-huh. in the industry that means that I, I'm therefore going to have an interest in it? Or could I be perhaps thinking about wanting to do something in construction but looking for inspiration? How does it work? You, you're, you could be thinking about anything. You could be thinking about, you know what, I'm, I'm moving home and I'm looking to develop my home. I'm looking to for windows. I'm looking for inspiration. I'm looking for ideas. I'm looking to, you know, one of the biggest things is property development, you know, to, to you know, in, invest in, in a property, whether that's building it from scratch or revamping a, a property. So the idea is, you know, if you're looking, again, just for you're moving home and you, you want to revamp it you want to do something go to this go to come to jtrade you know come to the come there and see what's what see meet the people meet you know interact with people see live demonstrations you know work avenue have been very supportive they're partnering in along with jtrade it's it's open for anyone i mean everybody lives in a home and it, it, the whole point is you know to come and get some inspirational ideas and you know the 150 exhibitors on the day we're expecting three to four thousand footfall on the day it's open from nine till six there's going to be a lot going on i mean it's, it, i can't cram it all in in a, in a short space of time a lot going on and i'm sure people the readers uh, of, of of all the jewish press have been seeing j trade over the last few months russell just finally if people want more information when is it where is it where do they go it's on the 14th of may at the business design center in islington it's from nine till six for more information go to www.jtrade.co.uk all the information's on there it will show a list of exhibitors it will give you all the information you can register it's free to come up as well so but you can register online and also if you register you will get entered into a prize to win five thousand pound holiday that is nearly it for this episode of the jewish views but time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from rabbi michael evan david from edgeware mazorti synagogue the two parashiot of this week tazria and metzora are full with complex and challenging mitzvot. The second parsha, Metzora, refers mostly to a person who is ill with tzara'at, a skin disease that we often identify as leprosy, but the interpretation of the rabbis was only contracted by gossip and defamation. They make a wordplay of the word Metzora, as an acronym of Moti Shem Ra, to cause your neighbor to have a bad name. Maimonides defined who is a gossiper 
by saying that is whoever claims things about somebody else and goes telling them from person to person. Maimonides says that even if the things are true, she still causes destruction in the world. Even worse than that, in his view, is Lashon Ara, defamation, and is the one that tells bad things about somebody else, even if they are true. Then, if he's lying, then it is even worse, and is considered Motzi Shemra, one that creates a bad name for another person. Maimonides further claims that the one who does Lashon Ara is equivalent to one that commits idolatry, incest, or murder. There is a nice Hasidic story to illustrate this point. It is told about a man that spoke badly about somebody in the neighborhood and then repented. He didn't know what to do and went to consult his rabbi, who sent him back to his house to bring a large pillow. The man did not understand, but did as told. The rabbi took the pillow and a knife, ripped open the pillow, spilling all the feathers to the wind, turned back to the man and said to go now and collect all the feathers back. The man thought the rabbi went mad and said, but rabbi, I will never be able to do that. Maybe I could find one or two feathers, but the rest already flew away. The rabbi looked him into his eyes and said, exactly. As the feathers, the power of your words already left your mouth, and it is impossible to put them back inside. May we always be careful with our words. May we always be able to understand that they have a power that can create or destroy, and that it's impossible to take our words back. Doesn't matter how many amends we try to make afterwards. Thank you very much to Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that is it for this, really, I think, I don't know about you two, fascinating edition of The Jewish Views. I've really enjoyed this one. Thank you very much to all of our guests. We have to thank Jess Harris, the organ donor campaigner, and of course, awaiting a transplant herself. Thank you goes to Stacey Abinson and Andrew Sherwood, to uh, Laura Aram, and of course, to Russell Bahar. And we mustn't forget to thank you at home for listening. And of course, thanks goes to our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent episode of The Jewish Views, or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. But from me, Phil Dave. And Kate Fulton. And Clive Roslin. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.